Hello, and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads, Season 3, where I am reading Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty. I am reading this off of Scribd, S-C-R-I-B-D.com, and as with always, all of my books that I read, uh, I highly recommend getting a PDF copy or a physical copy if you can, because there are many uh, photos and resources listed on them uh, as well uh, that would be very useful to gather all the knowledge from the book. This episode is Chapter 8, The First Megaliths. Before we get into it, I just want to thank everybody who continues to tune in and listen. If you want to support this podcast, go to the anchor.fm page for this podcast, and there's a support button there, and you can support with as little as 99 cents in monthly donations. Um, Thank you so much for considering it, and uh, with that said, let's get on with the chapter. Chapter 8, The First Megaliths. Quote, It is amazing people lived in simple dwellings of wood that are long gone. They made a huge effort in stone in the same places for thousands of years. Why? End quote. Pierre Maru. In an attempt to answer the above question, the late Pierre Maru spent every vacation for 30 years surveying the electromagnetic properties of the world's oldest stone creations. An unfathomable 6,700 years ago, inhabitants of one corner of France began raising enormous standing stones and rock chambers. 2,000 years before Egypt saw its first pyramid, these French engineers had zeroed in on energetic ground and seemed to be harnessing it. Moreau was the right person to investigate. Trained as an engineer in applied thermodynamics, his technical skills and persistence organized approach were the best means to make sense of a small region that contains 11,000 standing stones and dozens of chambers. It would take a greater challenge than this to intimidate a man who spent World War II blowing up bridges for British intelligence in German-occupied Belgium. Moreau was convinced that more was going on in ancient France than met the eye, something that involved invisible forces, detectable by the instruments he brought to bear year after year. But let us start at the beginning. Feast or Famine The simple model of the spread of agriculture that so many of us were taught in school is not accurate. Although farming did originate in the Middle East about 8,500 BC, it did not then spread quickly westward to Europe and revolutionize the world. For 2,000 years or more, farming remained primarily a part-time activity practiced by bands of hunter-gatherers. No one was anxious to give up the nature-based traditional lifestyle. Far from the feast or famine image we were taught, nomadic hunters had varied diets and lived longer, healthier lives than sedentary farmers who ate a monotonous diet and were therefore riddled with deficiency diseases. Full-time agricultural was eventually embraced as a way of life in Europe, but on a spotty basis, and it was not driven by envy of the farming life, but rather by sheer desperation. In the early days of the Stone Age Europe, many hunter-gatherer tribes lived near the coast. Here, particularly in estuaries, food was abundant. Fish, fat seals, seabirds, breeding in large colonies where eggs were plentiful, crabs, and selfish. Oysters in particular, rich in calories and tasty, formed an important mainstay of the diet for these people. 
Being able to feed many children, these bands flourished and population became dense around these estuaries and coastal marshes. The formerly nomadic people became sedentary. Life was good. Then, a major change in climate during the 5th millennium BC produced dramatic increase in rainfall, changing the salinity of the estuaries. This killed whole populations of oysters, which can only reproduce in narrow ranges of salinity. And just like that, a major food source vanished, taking with it a brief golden age. What had been a comfortable population density now became deadly. Too many people had lived stationary lives for many generations, thanks to the abundance of shellfish. The other natural food sources of the sea were not enough to feed the population, and returning to a normal hunter-gatherer economy inland was simply not an option. Over the time, the inland territories had become occupied by other bands. There was simply no new land which to move. These people literally had their backs to the sea, and their situation was desperate. Lacking any real choice, they turned to the only alternative available, full-time farming. Only in this way could they feed their dense population on a relatively small parcel of land. Then there's a little chart that talks about the agricultural appears and Dolman's rock chambers appear. Uh, Ibrin Peninsula, 5500 BC, agricultural, the uh, 5500 BC, and the rock chambers appeared at 4400 BC. Southwestern France, agricultural appeared before 5000 BC, and the rock chambers appeared at 4600 BC. And then Denmark, agricultural appeared, agriculture appeared uh, at 4200 BC, and the rock chambers appeared at 3600 BC. The Giant Menhirs The Gulf of Morbihan in France's Brittany was once such a place. With the Atlantic to the west, the long narrow peninsula of I'm going to butcher this French word, Loch Maraquere protects to the east an extensive estuary which was rich in oysters until the climate change occurred. This rocky region with clay soil and poor drainage was hardly a farmer's dream, but farm they did. However, practicing the ancient slash and burn agriculture quickly exhausted the soil, and within a few centuries it became difficult to feed the population on the limited amount of land available. As early as 1976, Colin Renfrew argued that the megaliths were built in response to this pressure. Around 4700 BC, these farmers began to build giant stone structures. As we see time and again, the building of these structures didn't happen at just any time. In each location, it occurred only there, only after there had been full-time farming for centuries. Using the slash-and-burn agriculture of the era, the soil quickly becomes exhausted and food protection falters. Table 1 that we just went over shows the sequence of these events in different parts of Europe. Megaliths means large stone. In France was the place where the megalithic age began. In fact, when measured by sheer volume and tonnage, far more megalith building occurred here than anywhere else in Europe. And from then on, the Society of Karnak, as this place is today known, flourished. Its chronology here has long been established. However, in recent decades, two highly unusable individuals, one Belgian, one English, have revolutionized our understanding of the likely purpose of these, the world's first megaliths. 
The earliest creations were single tall stones, which we call the French term, which we call by the French term menhir. They were erected at certain times and frequently decorated with agricultural images such as oxen, plows, and stone axes that Neolithic farmers employed to cut down trees for fields. Some of them were immense. The champion, La Min Min Breeze, which is now broken in two, stood in an awe-inspiring 67 feet and weighed over 80 tons. It has been estimated that it took a minimum of 3,800 adults to hoist it into place, and this would have meant the cooperation of numerous separate communities. An entire complex of such decorated miniers were erected on the Loch Morikia Peninsula. Again, sorry, I probably butchered that word. It has been assumed that the miniers were ceremonial, symbolic structures, probably with religious associations. At La Manio, a decorated miniere had numerous ceremonial axes deposited at its base, suggesting a link between axe exchange and megalithic ritual for the earliest, from the earliest stage. This link of megaliths and stone axes became endemic in following years, and stone axes from all over France began streaming into the area. <clears throat> Moreau, however, believed that the axes were used as symbols of fertility. He also said that the meniers are known to attract lightning. This is not surprising, because at the base of these giant stones, he measured negatively charged electric ground currents that interacted with the positive atmospheric electrical field. Again, we see a similar pattern of natural energies combined with fertility. Are passage graves really graves? The next style of stone structures to arise in Britain was the so-called passage graves. They are like larger versions of our New England rock chambers of Chapter 6 with additions. And as with their American cousins, they were placed on spots of magnetic variation. Entrances were gained through a small opening leading to the central chamber via a long, narrow tube that was lined and roofed with stone slabs. After completion, the entire assemblage was buried under an enormous mound. Carbon dating has placed the origin of passage graves here at an astonishingly early date of about 4,700 BC. Skeletons have been found in these passage graves, and an individual grave would be used for several centuries. Yet, in all that time, only two or three dozen individuals might be buried there. In other cases, such as the largest of passage graves, Newgrange in Ireland, only five or six burials took place. An entire region might contain just a few of these passage graves. This scarcity has caused some archaeologists to argue that the primary use of passage graves was not at all as graves. Rather, the burial aspect seems to have been a ceremonial part of some more important function. What bones are found were usually brought there and burned. English expert Colin Burge explains, quote, it is strange that no tomb was ever filled with human remains to anything like its capacity. Not even the Irish passage graves where consider considerable accumulations of burnt bone are common. It is likely that the burials at these sites were part of a much wider range of ceremonial and ritual functions, and that they were certainly not intended to act as charnel houses for successive burials. End quote. Ian Kynes of the British Museum in London adds, quote, it was always rather blithely assumed that their function was for burial. Now there's an increasing feeling that this may be only one aspect 
and perhaps in some instances only a minor aspect of a very complex rituals which reflect the preoccupation of an early farming society facing a new environment. End quote. As we have seen in the Americas, skeletons and skulls were often associated with regeneration and rebirth. In Mexico, for example, human bones were regarded as the seat of the essential life force and the metaphysical seed from which the individual, whether human, animal, or, or plant, is reborn. In certain parts of Africa, a planter would dig up an ancestor and bring his skeletal hand to the field during planting season. As late as the early 20th century, farmers in Finland would borrow bones from the cemetery to place along the edges of their field while plowing, then return them later in the year. In Hungary, dirt from a fresh cave sprinkled on your field was always considered beneficial. The linkage of bones, the dead, and the agricultural fertility is an extremely long-standing tradition throughout the world. In Anatolia, Turkey, and Ketel Hoyak, the world's first farming culture circa 6200 BC, the art is dominated by combined images of death and fertility. Ceremony or Commerce the rock-enclosed drywall corbel vaulted chamber evolved in France over the next centuries. The interior is small, smaller than the vaults of the preceding passage graves. In fact, they are identical to the pattern of the New World rock chambers. These were the ones that would dramatically enhance the performance of seeds placed inside, a process which would be of tremendous economic importance to a farming community with limited land and exhausted soil, such as was the case with Karnak. Pierre Moreau brought his own magnetic gradiometer and ground electrodes to bear on a dozen passage graves and rock chambers. Setting the magnometer and its tripod atop the capstones, he found that the needles of the meter often danced all day on a chamber, but be remained quite steady in the adjacent fields. His magnometer worked a bit differently than ours. It would register changes in the strength of the vertical component of the magnetic field, but not absolute strength. Ours measures absolute strength, but is not as sensitive as Moreau's. Yet time and again his readings coincided with what we have obtained in numerous locations. Moreau also mentioned the electric ground currents inside and outside the chambers. The current was always many times stronger inside. Moreau is not the only revolutionary to shed new light on archaeological assumptions regarding Karnak. In the past 20 years, in fact, a mutiny of sorts has begun within the con conservative confines of French archaeology. Cast in the role of leader of these mutineers is an Englishman, Dr. Mark Patton. As curator of the Archaeological Museum on the island of Jersey, he has spent nearly two decades excavating these structures, and some of his finds have surprised the academic world. Formerly, it was always assumed that the huge meneers were erected for ceremonial, even religious purposes. Thus, one would expect them to be accorded great respect. In 1984, however, while excavating the geometrically decorated megalithic site at Garvrinus, French archaeologist Charles Tanguay Leroux discovered that the carvings on one of the giant stone slabs used in the ceiling exactly matched those on the capstone of Lochmiaquir's famous Grand Tumulus La Table des Marchands. Apologies. But as subsequent investigations revealed, even the Grand Tumulus was not the original source of the stone. 
both slabs have come from the same original block that once stood in the ground as a decorated manure. More recent excavations provide clear evidence that earlier manures, even the more recent grand tumulus structures, were regularly uprooted, broken up, and reused in later megalithic structures. As we noted earlier, the peoples of the Americas blended the spiritual, ceremonial, and practical, especially in the vital area of fertility. If the later structures had a primary practical value, with each model being superseded by a better model, it makes very good sense indeed to reuse material from the older structures. It would not be unlike stripping boards off an abandoned building to erect a new one. When arguing for a strictly religious or ceremonial purpose behind the massive effort needed to build these structures, people often use the comparisons of the volunteer craftsmen who erected the European cathedrals in the Middle Ages. These were people moved by religious passions, they say, and they required no pay for their labors. However, this argument ignores important differences. The craftsmen of Paris who erected Notre Dame constituted less than 1% of the population of the city. Many, perhaps most, were in fact paid. The volunteers probably worked on the cathedral in their spare time. By contrast, many great megalithic structures had to involve 20% of the population, many of them full-time, for years, or part-time for decades, even centuries. Neolithic society made far more of an investment per capita in building than ancient structures than did any medieval European city in creating even the most impressive cathedrals. Furthermore, the Neolithic structures were usually built at a time of desperation. The Notre Dames of the rules were produced products of affluence that could spare whole segments of population for non-food related activity. The situations are not comparable. Patton provides impressive evidence that the changes in megaliths were part of a change in Neolithic social structure. He believes that the tribal elders in France were replaced by a new elite whose status depended more on accumulated wealth than on ancestral lineage. If so, where did the wealth come from, and what was the connection between wealth and megalith building? An inquisitive Belgian in Brittany. Brittany is the westernmost part of France and is mainly rocky. Geologically, it is a part of the Armorican Massive. Rich in granite quartz and schitts, it is also loaded with magnetite, the magnetic rock so intimately associated with the North American rock chambers. A part of Le Urban Peninsula has a good amount of magnetite in the ground and, accordingly, is littered with magnetic anomalies. The readings have discussed in previous chapters average 300 to 500 gamma differences from their surroundings. At Karnak's, Moreau's readings range from minus 400 gammas to plus 1100 gammas. The Loch Maraquir Peninsula is also the most seismically active region of France, surrounded by 31 faults. Figure 16 shows that at least four of the major megaliths lie in a straight line precisely on top of one of the invisible faults. Seismic stresses can cause electric currents in the ground by two different mechanisms. The first familiar is called the piezoelectric effect and is limited to quartz. It has long been known that quartz placed under pressure develops electric charge, and this area of France is plentiful in quartz. A second mechanism has been discovered in recent years. Almost any kind of rock if placed under enough pressure to fracture 
will emit electric current just before fracturing. This may be the primary cause of newly discovered electric and magnetic signals preceding earthquakes. The mysterious balls of lightning rising out of the ground which frequently precede quakes have been thought to arise from the crushing of rock under stress. In labs, this breakage has produced similar light balls, even in non-quartz rocks. In a prelude to an earthquake in Quebec, basketball-sized globes of light were seen emerging right through the asphalt of a parking lot. Armor geology also produces numerous variances in the strength of the local gravitational field near Karnak. Figure 17 shows how the major stone structures built here align with those zones of disturbance. The three dotted lines show the borders of the area disturbed in these ways. Outside the lines, readings are uniform. Inside, they vary widely. There's one frontier where the edges of all three zones come together, and right here where Moreau found the edges of the magnetically, seismically, and gravitationally disturbed zones meet, the ancients erected the most fantastic stone rows in the world. When dealing with the electromagnetic forces of the Earth, experience shows that the strongest effects usually occurs at the edge of the disturbed zone, not at its center. On a similar border, the ancient American metropolis of Cahokia was built. The discontinuity of a gradient seems more important than being where the forces are strongest. At the edge of such discontinuities in electrical conductivity, extreme instabilities in the vertical component of the local geomagnetic field occur inducing electric currents. Moreau measured both simultaneously at Karnak. And then there's some pictures of the figures 16 and 17. Mega megaliths. The grand tumulus structures were the climatic stage and the erection of megaliths in France. This was an ambitious though brief era. The tumuli are even larger than the already massive passive graves the smallest tumulus being similar in size to the biggest passage grave, about 32,000 square feet, or the size of a football field. In all grand tumulus structures, blocks of granite were piled atop one another to massive proportions, sometimes to the height of a five-story building. Table 2 shows the dimensions of six tumuli. Enormous though they were, these structures covered chambers no bigger than your average modern bedroom. 7 to 13 feet long by 3 to 10 feet wide, perhaps 7 to feet, 7 feet tall, the same height as the American rock chambers. They were not corbelled, always rectangular in shape, and would sometimes have subsidiary structures such as side niches and cysts in the floor. With the exception of the St. Michael Tumulus, there was only one chamber in each. They were not built as graves. At St. Michael, 20 one stone burial chambers were found, but in many only the skeletons of young girls were interred, the favorite sacrificing of planting societies. Other chambers only contained skeletons of small cows. Perhaps the megaliths were here were not erected for corpses, but rather the corpses were interred for the megaliths. So what was their primary purpose? When we look for clues to this puzzle, we see that the tumuli were always made of granite having a magnetite content ranging from 4% to 30%. Granite is the most common radioactive mineral though, of course, the radioactivity is extremely low. But walk into any hardware store in New Hampshire, the granite state, and the home radon detector is always prominently displayed. Every house made of granite needs one. 
Radon gas is radioactive and constantly emitted by granite. Actual radiated neutrons are also produced by this common mineral. If you live in such an area, you are always supposed to keep a window slightly open. As long as air circulates, you will be safe. But when the indoor air is so enclosed as to no longer circulate, radon gas can build up to the levels that are believed to produce cancer over time. Geiger counters chatter away in such homes. When the grand tumulus design, we have a small mountain of granite enclosing particularly small air spaces. The airspace has no windows and is only connected to the outside atmosphere by a long tunnel. This design practically eliminates air circulation within. Radiation and radon gas both do one thing extremely well, create ions. The air within the chamber of the Grand Tumulus should be highly ionized on all but the windiest days. In addition, the usual energy selected in the siding of passage graves were also sought out. As shown in figure 16, Mon Lud lies astride a hidden fault near the tip of the Lok Miaquir Peninsula, the home of the original miners. The Chumalai St. Michael and La Mostier both flank the multiple energy frontier zone, on which the alignments lie. A grand tumulus should have acted like a giant, particularly intense version of our New England rock chambers. So, quite possibly, these tumuli were used as giant seed treatment chambers. And then there's a diagram, or a table rather, of the sizes, lengths, and widths, and heights of the different tumulists. Stone rows. The higher degree of electrification of the air inside grand tumulus chambers may have reduced the length of time seeds needed to be left there. This would speed up the amount of seed handled. In modern treatments used in the seed industry, higher voltages means that only seconds are required to increase seed productivity rather than the many minutes needed in the New England rock chambers. Stone axes found in the area indicate that people were coming from all over Western Europe to patronize these structures. So demand may have well been outstripping supply. Seed treatment on a massive scale, though, may have been made possible with the arrival of the stone rows. Containing 11,000 rocks, the stone rows on the Morbihan Peninsula were the most massive of these rows ever erected on the planet. The stones weighing several tons apiece were stuck upright in the ground to form long lines that would often converge on stone semicircles. Just like at Avebury in England, the veneers alternate between a lozenge-shaped female stone and a pillow-like male stone. Plate 23 shows an example of these rows. Going from east to west along the boundary of the zone disturbance, the field of medic runs east by northwest for 3,828 feet with an average width of 330 feet, the length of 10 football fields and twice as wide. Here, 11 lines contain 1,099 veneers mounted vertically in the ground. At the end of these lines, there seems to have originally been a half circle of standing stones called Akromlech. The stones begin at about 2 feet in height and continually increase in size toward the Kromlech, topping out at 13 feet tall. This pattern is also found in Avebury Henge in England, and as we shall see in Chapter 9, there is a very good physical reasoning for doing it. The field of Camario begins 1,000 
1,100 feet after the field of medic ends. It runs for 3,674 feet and averages 330 feet wide. 982 meniers are placed in 10 lines, ranging from 1.6 feet to 21 feet. Here too, the stones gradually increase in size towards the end. The field of Kurlskan begins 1,300 feet later, has a length of 2,886 feet, and an average width of 456 feet. Its 13 lines run due east, totaling 540 stones that range from 2.6 feet to 13 feet high. To 13 feet high. In each of these three fields, the stone rows are only approximately parallel, but converge gradually as they approach the cromlech. One cannot escape the striking similarities in scale and numbers of these three fields. They become all the more thought-provoking when you look at figure 17, where all three fields parallel the remarkable convergence of seismic, gravitational, and magnetic frontiers. As we are about to see, the physics of these stone rows is indisputable. In fact, you can test it yourself in a small backyard experiment. 20th century physicists used the same principles to build enormous structures called supercolliders. More on this in the next chapter. And that is the end of chapter 8. Um, chapter 9 is called The Henges of Southern England. And once again, you know, thank you for listening. If you are enjoying this podcast, uh, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Um, again, if you're so inclined to help support the podcast, you can go to the Anchor FM page for this podcast. And there is a support button where you can donate as little as 99 cents per month to help support the continuation of this podcast. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. Stay safe. I'm glad you're enjoying this. And I will talk to you soon.